0: So, First Corinthians chapter fifteen, as we continue verse by verse chapter by chapter through the Word of God, and I really am thankful for where we 're at in the text because we kind of went through though what you were talking about with this thing going on last week. It was the whole uh, really can you honestly say there is no such thing as a resurrection? Can you even debate over that subject matter if i mean Think about what you're saying to say that. And that's where Paul was addressing. And I want to kind of put things into perspective. So I want to go right to prayer. So I'm just chomping at the bit to kind of get into the teaching and context so that we can get right into our beautiful text tonight. So pray with me, would you please? Lord, as you intend for your word to penetrate our hearts and take deep root, to challenge us and exhort us and correct us and rebuke us, and exhort us, confirm, Lord, those things in our hearts that you've spoken to equip us for every good work. Do so now when you in this time. May we truly receive your word with gladness inculcated into our lives and allow you, Lord, to bear forth the fruit of obedient hearts, surrendered to you in your will. And Lord, as we look at this, make it more than just a simple theological tenet. Lord, make it something that every one of us gets. And I just love you, Lord. I pray for that fresh filling of your Holy Spirit so that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do. Speak to every one of us in our ears, in our hearts, in our minds tonight, that we will be personally addressed, personally spoken to, radically, radically met. We commit this night to you. redeem every second, I pray. May we have so much fun in your word and now captivate us. May every second be perfectly spent. Jesus, in your name. Amen. I would say tonight as it would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Now, it's important to note, by the way, that's one of the reasons we do go verse by verse. Chapter by chapter through the word of God, because we really want to make sure we get everything into context. But let me kind of start off here with a kind of a concept. In the first 19 verses, Paul now, and this is a guy who used to be a Christian killer, Christian persecutor, thought he would squelch out this cult thing that he thought was a cult, this Christianity at the time called The Way, till he met Jesus personally. God isn't happy to doing that, by the way. You're probably aware of that. And the man was radically changed. Ultimately, through a series of events, he will find himself on the mission field. He will take, in essence, four, arguably five trips. Four are recorded in Scripture. On these mission trips, he will go out as an apostle. He will be sent out by the Holy Spirit, by his church, prayed for, sent with blessing. And off he goes with an apprentice, with an assistant. And he goes out and he preaches the gospel, invests in the group, and then normally flees for his life to the next town. On his first trip, Paul basically went to Cyprus and the southern, almost to the center of Turkey. Would head back the way he came. But the second trip, Paul will wind up now with a new apprentice, a new assistant, and he'll wind up making his way into Europe. During that second trip, he'll make his way all the way over to Greece. And when he makes his way over to Greece, he will plant this church here. Roughly about 50 A.D. Now it's roughly 55 to 59 A.D. I should say, I'm sorry. And roughly five years later now, And he's hearing messages about this messed up church. And he gets a letter, assumedly, from these three guys, Stephanus, Portinatus, and Achaicus, who basically start the whole letter by saying, here's the church, it's messed up, here are the problems. And also, we have a bunch of questions for you, Pastor Paul. How do you answer these? So the first six chapters, again, he addresses the problems within the church. And then from chapter 7 on, it's a very tidy book, chapter 7 to the rest, he's answering these questions. During this, one of the things that seems to have arisen is there seems to be a debate within the church. And the debate is over whether there really is a resurrection. Now, <clears throat> it's interesting because when we get through this text, and we will be going through a good portion of it, well, perhaps, uh, and, and in that particular uh, area, what you'll find is, is that a church stuck in an area where it recognizes it is different from the world around it will be challenged to make one of two... Uh, stands. One of those stands is to be ardently different from the world around it, and the other is to seek to absorb as much of it as possible. In other words, to try to be as cool as you possibly can and not go to hell. And unfortunately, every church is either going to be impacting the community it's in or it's going to be impacted by the community it's in. And unfortunately, the second one never turns out well. Now understand, this is why we don't seek to become like the world, because we used to be like the world. And because the church is supposed to be the place of the resurrected, where the old person gets hung on the cross, a new person gets raised in a newness of life, and there should be a new person, we shouldn't be like the person we were before. This particular church that Paul is writing to, and again, planted in a place that was known for its sin, known for its sexual promiscuity and tolerance, known for its open drunkenness and crazy carnival-like attitude, the church is still struggling with figuring out where it fits in. And if you don't realize that you are a citizen of heaven, and we are called to be ambassadors of the place that we live, but don't have never really been there, but but we get hints of it in church, he had hints of it in his word. And if we can't be ambassadors to that, we'll start sucking out of the world like everybody else does. Paul will quote from several different poets in this letter. He will draw from Jewish rabbis in this letter. But more than anything, Paul is looking and he's going, look at what you're doing. So when this debate comes in, assumedly from a bunch of Sadducees that somewhere down the line may have responded to the gospel. And there they were with that view before this point, trying to drag it into church like every one of us. And every one of us got dead things we want to drag into the church. Somewhere down the line, it's going to have to be addressed. And that's what Paul's doing. So in those first 19 verses, Paul looks and he goes, do you even realize what you're saying? You were debating over this. So if Jesus isn't raised, the the end conclusion is we are the most pitiful people on the planet. There could be nobody that's more pitiful than us because we're withholding from all of the world's pleasures because we are convinced heaven's pleasures are better. And if there really isn't a heaven and there really isn't an afterlife, what in the world are we doing? So in the first 19 verses, he just kind of looks and goes, what do you think you're doing? Now, verse 20, now he comes to the conclusion, let me show you what happens because Jesus is raised from the dead. So here's the good news in all of that. Now, understand, all of the idea of Jesus being raised from the dead puts us in a place where if we realize why that's so profound, we realize why the world has a problem with the resurrection. So let me put it this way. Have you ever been to one of those funerals? Now, maybe you've been to different kinds of funerals. You know, some of us have been to more than others. And there are some funerals where you realize that the people who are speaking have little knowledge of the people that that actually have passed away. You know that there are some where there's people who are speaking, have great knowledge of those that have passed away. And then there's those special funerals. Perhaps you've been to one, you know, where they have great knowledge of the person who's passed away. But the person was awful. And now they got to make up stuff. And you know it. And even a preacher's got to make up stuff. He's like, oh, you know, and I've like heard the story, perhaps you've ever heard about where the preacher is trying to really kind of make everybody feel a little bit better, but the guy was a horrible guy, and there he was in the closed casket in front because they had the funeral, and you know, and he's like, oh, and he was a great husband, and he was a wonderful father, and he was a great employee, but the woman looks and goes, he was never there, and he never cared for me, he never listened, he never invested in me. The children are like, he was never there, he never invested in me, he never took time to get to know me. The workers were like, man, that guy was awful. You know, he's like, we were. Oh, he was coming in late. He was leaving early. He never did his duties well. And we always seemed like we had to clean up after him. Finally, the woman, the wife, finally got up. And she goes, excuse me for a second, Pastor. And she got up and she lifted up the coffin. She goes, I just wanted to make sure we were talking about the same man. I don't want that said of me. How about you? I don't want the old man of me to be so profoundly current that you got to lift up the coffin to see whether we're still talking about the same guy. And here he says, now that Christ is resurrected, now that there is a resurrection, we are to live resurrected. Because we're not to look like a dead person anymore. And so the whole purpose of 20 to the end, in essence, is this whole idea of really doing more than just sitting around smoking pipes on a leather-bound chair somewhere and acting smart. This is more than just sitting around about a theological discussion. This is where the penny drops and says, what does it look like to live resurrected? Now, if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, let me just make it clear. Jesus died on the cross for your sins like mine and like ours because somebody's got to pay for it. And God, in His infinite love, gave one provision. You have to be perfect to die for someone else, and the only one qualified is Him. So He came down, died on the cross for your sins and mine, paid the price in full, just as Scripture promised, was buried, just as Scripture promised, three days later, rose again, and when seen by a whole lot of people, and those whole lot of other people testified and wrote it down, and that's what we read. And then he simply asks, will you let me be then the Savior and Lord of your life? If you say yes to that, welcome to the journey with us. Now, until that point, we are spiritually dead. That's what Ephesians 1 says. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. Ephesians 2, 1. But the moment we accept the gift of Jesus Christ, we are made new. We are resurrected people. Now, are you resurrected? Are you a new person in Christ? Are you you just trying to bank on going to church? Hey, you know, lots of people have been to my house, but you don't get adopted just by showing up at my house. You got to bring food. I'm just kidding. Anyways, <laughs> there's more to it. And it's just the same. God. saying, what, I should let you in my house you know, eternally because you drop by once or twice? It is all about accepting the gift of his son because at that point, God's innocence gets swapped for our guilt. So now that Christ is risen from the dead. Now, if you haven't, Here we go. I'm just. I'm not even going to wait. I'm going to do it right now. Just pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, if that really is true, I'm going to say yes. Have my sins. Have my filth. Have my failures. Have my muck. Have all of that stuff. If you died on the cross so that all of it could be paid, thank you. Rose again on the third day, just like Scripture promised to give me new life. I gladly receive it. Declaring you as the Lord and Savior of my life. Be my Lord and Savior. Have me now, I pray. Jesus, in your name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, welcome to the family. If you've prayed that prayer, welcome to resurrected life. And this is what he says now, but now, verse 20. Christ is risen from the dead. And those, it says, and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits; after that, those who are Christ that is coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the father to God, the father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death itself, for he has put all things under his feet. Psalm 8, six. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Start with me there for a moment. Let's just take a look at this and develop it for a moment. Verse 20, it says, but now Christ is risen from the dead. If there is a resurrection, well, then clearly our first point of seven in this is that Jesus really did raise. Now, if Jesus really did raise, by the way, then from the dead, then there's a few things that come with that. One is we serve a living God. Let me tell you, this is the difference. I mean, if those people out there, by the way, that are seeking to tap into the spiritual world, the idea of speaking to somebody who was a long time ago living... For instance, tapping into a saint, or dare I even say, Jesus' mother on Earth—they died, and like it or not, they stay dead. Because people, when they die, stay dead. Unless God touches them, death equals death. Praying to somebody that lived 500 years ago was just as crazy as looking through an almanac of a, of a, of a, you know of what people that lived 500 years ago and just pick a name at random and just try to speak to them. Now, here's the good news. Jesus really did raise from the dead, and I serve a living God. And because he's a living God and a living Savior, he is to be reckoned with. And therefore, I'm accountable to him. And that's one of the reasons why people don't like a Jesus that's living. Somebody that was nice, that taught people things, that pet puppies and was kind to people and gave children ice cream cones, sounds really nice and happy, but a, but a living Savior and a Lord and the judge of all the earth... Hey, that's an entirely different story. But we don't talk about Jesus like he's an ideal, do we? We don't talk about him like he was just some kind of society we joined, some secret thing with a handshake and maybe a secret ring or an amulet. He's a person living and risen that lives inside of me and you, and he's changing us from the inside out. And i tell you what, the, the very outlook and priorities God puts in us can only be attributed to him. So the beginning starts with this. If there really is a resurrection, and since there really is a resurrection, then Jesus really is living. He is living. And his resurrection means that when I talk to him, it makes sense because he's living. Two, notice what it says then. It says as well, and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The second thing, by the way, is that Jesus not only did raise, but second is that Jesus is the beginning of the harvest. Now, consider this with me for a second, because this whole first fruits thing is something we may not do, well, we don't do here anymore. So it bears at least worth sort of developing. Follow me on this. Back about 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago, we lived in an agrarian culture. You know what that means? It means we were farmers. We lived off the land. And whether that meant we planted and, and ate what we planted, or whether that means that we raised animals that ate what we planted, One way or another, we lived off the land. Rain was essential. Greenery was essential. Temperate weather was essential. I mean, today, let's face it, we could live in a place that rains over 300 days a year and it doesn't interrupt anything as long as we don't take our laptops outside. Most of the work can get done under any society now, under any form. We could live in Yakutsk. It could be 40 below and it would still be okay. But back then, we lived off of the land. And as we lived off of the land, the harvest was everything because the harvest was whether we ate or not. It was really, to be honest, it was our future. So there were harvests at the beginning of the summer, there were harvests at the end of the summer. At the beginning of the summer, by the way, it was things like barley. By the end of the summer, it was things like grapes. But in between that time, and things, and you know that because we live in a place, like, by the way, that's so beautifully lush, isn't it? I mean, when do apples mature? The beginning of the summer or the end of the summer? Yeah, the end of the summer. I mean, you could get some in the beginning, but they're going to be extremely tart and a lot smaller than you'd expect them to be. Everything has its season. Does that make sense? But so get this. The idea of the first fruits was, let's say that we planted wheat. And that's a very important thing, especially for a place where bread is one of the staples we live off of. It would be like living in Asia and planting rice. It's a very big staple. And so as the the wheat would grow, we'd start to take a look. And there comes that one point, sooner or later, where you start to see the beginning of the harvest. You start to see the tips mature, and you look at that. And by the way, I don't know if you've ever seen a like salt-of-the-earth farmer or met one of those guys. They're like their own kind of artist. Have you noticed that? Now, my grandfather-in-law was one of those guys. Apparently, we even owned some land in like Wyoming. I think it's some form of farm of some sort. I'm, I'm a city boy, so I what, what am I going to do with a farm? But you know you used to talk like this and you shout a whistle and you when sh- 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 like this. I love the old guy Gip, prayed to receive the Lord on his deathbed when he was 94 years old. It's beautiful. And you talk about land, and you talk about the way that the land, and it's important to get the rain at so the right time, the rain and the rains and the wind. Watch out for the wind because he was growing wheat. And wheat, you know, you kind of need too much wind, and it's bad for the wheat. And I'd sit there and listen to the man talk about his field, and his eyes would sparkle. Kind of like when I get to talk about our flock. And he would talk about that time where you kind of look out and he would get up onto the top of the silo that where he knows sooner or later that's going to hold all of this grain. And he looks up at this thing and he just sort of spans the whole land and he kind of gives it a once over. And he looks and he sees what part of the land is the sweetest and bearing with the strongest fruit. What part needs the greatest work? And, of course, the part that's bearing the most fruit, to be honest, would be the part he'd love to stand in. But that's not the part that he needs to be at because it's doing it on its own. He needs to be at the part where, of course, is struggling the most. You're aware of that in ministry too, right? If you're like, Pastor Tony doesn't spend a lot of time with me, maybe you're actually just doing awesome. Now, don't fake a crisis just so we'll spend more time. And he would go and he'd talk about how, in the beginning, you can see there's a certain time where by this time, you kind of got a rough idea of what the harvest is going to look like. But if you've ever been a parent, you kind of know how that works, too. I mean, in the beginning, you know that the Israelis don't name their children traditionally, don't name their children for eight days. They give it time to look, get a little bit of their personality. And by the time, in the eighth day is when they circumcise their son, for instance, it's the boy. And that's when they ask what the name is. And the reason is, is by that point, you can see whether the guy's like slugger or pacifist or like punch face or whatever, you know. And that's, they name them, their kids those things, even to this day. And you kind of get the idea. Sooner or later, you kind of go, hmm, that's probably what our children are going to be like to some degree, unless God really intervened. And get the idea that when that happens... And you have that, and then you look and you cover you. You span the entire field, and you see the best part. And as it just starts to bear forth fruit, you grab the very, very best because you're going to take it to the Lord. And then you're going to go to the temple with this bushel, or this, this this small bushel full of this harvest, and you lay it before the Lord. And you take that first fruits and you put it on the ground like this, and you go and you stomp it right before God. And then you say as This is, may the harvest be. And that was the declaration. The idea is that's why you took your best. I mean, why would you take your lousy and then say, let my whole harvest be as lousy as this? You took the very best, and you're like, now this, God, I pray, because only you can make this harvest. No one else can make the harvest. I can't even make the harvest. I can interfere with it, but in the end of it all, you're the one who brings the harvest. I want to give you the best, and I want to put it in the ground. Let it be crushed, because it's got to die. And it's interesting, because even if those of you who will go to Israel with us, we're going to go to one of those places, God willing, called Kifar Kedem, which means ancient village, by the way. And there's this Hasidic, this traditional uh, Hebrew man. He's a friend of mine by this point, and he talks about it. It's been so fun because he has all these Jewish traditions. And one of the things he says is when they sow seed, they cry. He says, I don't know why. It's just a tradition. When we sow seed, it, we, we cry. And, and if you know the guy, he's not like one of those kind of guys that just cries because something makes, you know, like everybody, he just doesn't cry over everything. And it was interesting because I gave him a little bit of time to kind of go over and he's like, well, maybe it's because the rain comes and since that's like water falling, water falls from our face. And I actually, and I finally said, you know, can I ask you, Menachem, is it possibly because the seed has to die? And that's what we're going to see in our text here in a moment. He goes, unless the seed dies, you can't really bear forth fruit from it. The seed's got to die now get this the idea of it is is that you look and you took the best and you're like wouldn't it be great if the entire harvest looked like this if my whole field was like this do you get that and this is called the first fruits now let's put it back into where we are in the church God took his son and he took him and he put him to the ground and he did this and he said as this is let the harvest be. And we are then the harvest. You wonder why Jesus said, hey, the workers are, are few. Oh, the, 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 the harvest is plentiful. It's the workers that are the problem. The problem isn't the harvest. The problem is the workers. There's not enough of them. So would you pray that the Lord of the harvest would send harvesters? So the disciples are like, yes, Lord, send harvesters. And then Jesus goes, go. And you can see them going, go where? It's like, you were praying. You were praying for people to go to the harvest. I'm sending you to the harvest. It's, yeah, I was praying, but I didn't think it meant me. And that's by the way much of our prayer life is volunteering, though we don't know it in our prayer life. We're like, Lord, go ahead and change my family. God, change. And God's like, perfect, you volunteered. And you're like, oh, no, no, no. Do it without me. You're big enough. And God goes, you showed up at the line the moment you started praying. The prayer closet becomes the place where the bugle gets blown. And understand, for him to say that, The resurrected Jesus that sin could not conquer, that death could not overcome. The one that all of the man-made religion couldn't interfere with. The one that lived most holy and in constant fellowship with the Father. Guess what? Welcome to being the harvest of the first fruits. He goes, this is what happens because there's a resurrection. Resurrection. Because you accepted Jesus, you're resurrected. And because you're resurrected, guess what? You are now part of this harvest. That's the point here. So follow me on this. So it says then, But Christ now is risen from the dead, has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then he actually relates it. For since by man came death, that we're speaking of Adam there, By man also came the resurrection of the dead. Our third point, our first is Jesus really did raise. Second is Jesus is the beginning of the harvest. And the third is I too await a resurrection. He says that he has become then, it's just because by one person came came death, the other person came resurrection. Notice the order. Death comes first. You can't have a resurrection without a death. What's interesting is the church loves to and wants to live a resurrected life, but isn't interested in dying. We want to live the power that's on the other side of the grave, but we won't go through the cross to get it. Well, we'll happily receive the cross of Christ because that paid for our sins. It's the cross we have to pick up daily and follow him. Nah, that's the hard one. And then he says, and by the way, if I await because I am now a partaker of that resurrection, well then what I do now matters for eternity. Jesus wants to reward what I do with him. So as an Adam, I'll die. Even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. And that's what I get to look forward to. And I realize from this point forward, here's the difference. Because I am resurrected in Christ, the glory days are in front of me. The gory days are behind me. Hey, if you don't know Jesus, the best you got is now. Man, the best is yet to come. There'll be a day I will shed this physical frame. Glory, hallelujah. And I'll be able to walk with Christ without any limitation. Now, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ, it is coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. And he puts an end to all rule. All authority and power. Do you see it there in verse 24? Listen. Because there is a resurrection, all other rule will be put to an end. Do you know what that means? There is going to be a day that you'll never see corruption again. You'll never have to deal with politics. Hallelujah. You'll never have to deal with anything that's demonic. Hallelujah. There will only be one in charge. There will only be one way, and it will all be right. Now, until then, we live in a fallen world with a fallen politic, with fallen people. How do you know what's going to be messed up? It involves people. People like the church is messed up. It involves people. We are the margin of error. But God has no error. And he knows what he's doing. There's going to be a day when all principalities, all powers, all dominions, every governor, every president, every, you know, whatever it is, every king, every queen, every prime minister, there will be nothing. There will only be the king of kings. And when then that day comes, you won't have to worry about listening to a boss who seems to know less than you do. You won't have to worry anymore about punching a clock, waiting for the time to be done. You'll be stepping into eternity and everything is going to be amazing. Verse 25 says he must reign until he's put all of the enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Do you realize that there is going to be a day when even death will not appear before you anymore? You know what that means? I mean, no more caskets, no more cancer, no more catastrophes, no more heartaches, no more goodbyes, no more pain, no more suffering, no more loss. You'll never have to say, watch out. Call me when you get there. You'll never have to look when crossing the street of gold. There'll never be death again. But I want you to realize this. The physical death that we grieve over here on earth, and I know some of us, even this last year, have really gone through it. People that we know and we love dearly, we've lost relationship with due to them ceasing to live on earth anymore. That is what God experiences in every moment. Sad to say, with the majority of the world. Why we grieve so much, if you think about us, we've lost our relationship with Him. We can no longer be intimate with somebody who's passed on. You can I mean the memories make us feel close perhaps when we have those reminiscent moments. Those moments when our heart throbs and pains a little bit and feels like it's been gripped because someone that we care for, the closest thing we can feel to them is really something that we recollect. But I'll never have to say goodbye to another person I love again. And I was raised around it. And if you've ever been there where you've watched and you've had to say goodbye, every best friend that I've ever had before I met my wife has died. And sad to say, the majority of them have died in front of me. And you get to this point where you just kind of wall yourself up, don't you? You're like, you just don't love as deep, you don't invest as much, you don't let in as deep because you never want to experience that again. And there's always that part of you that has to figure out how to temper how much you let in. I think the Lord tells us to guard our heart. He knows what this world is like. And there's going to be I'll never have to do that anymore. I'll never have to stare at a face and just memorize it just in case. It'll always just be life. Jesus. And you know what the coolest part is? I get to spend it with you. I get to spend it with my family. I get to spend it with every person that I know intimately that bears my surname. Oh Lord, come quickly. Now, verse 27 he says that he's put all things under his feet, and when he says all things are put under him, well, it's evident then that those who put, that he who put all things is accepted. In other words, when the father is given it to his son, the father's not going to be submitting to the son. The son has always been submitted to the father in this. And there will be a day when everything is put under Jesus' feet, and then Jesus turns and hands it to the Father. It's interesting, because with all the authority that the Lord gives us, we'll turn like with our crowns and lay them before the feet of the Lord. And it says, you know what happens in the end? Verse 28. That when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And you know, what in the end of it all, God the Father will be everything. I will see That nothing really was ever about me anyways, except in his heart. And everything truly insignificant in the world will really just be gone. And then we get to these really wacky verses. Look at verse 29. It says, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? That's the first of these arguments. The second, then, is why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in which, uh, see, in you, which I have in Christ Jesus uh, our Lord, I die daily. If in a manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Well, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Hey, don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. And Paul has, the, it's, you know, it's like, it's like Paul's almost quoting, if you think about it, it's almost like Paul's quoting some sitcom right now. Like if Paul were to do this today, what would this look like? Paul would be quoting something that was on, you know, sort of on the radio. He goes, "You guys are already singing this. What does this mean to you now? But you ever wonder about this baptized for the dead thing? Now there are cults who take this and do really wacky stuff with it." They wear their special underwear and you get baptized for, you know, great grandpa something and it's called binding so to make sure it gets them out of, out of purgatory or whatever. None of that's scriptural, by the way. And so here's the problem. And so let me help set some boundaries on this. You want to look at when it comes to something that's doctrinal, you want to make sure that in one way or another it's commanded, commended, or condemned in the gospel, lived out or not in the book of Acts, and then taught as a, some form of doctrine in the epistles. For which nowhere are you going to read this. This is it. So some will say, well, look at the early church practice, this baptizing for the dead. And they get all kinds of wacky places with it. But did you notice in this, by the way, just without even having to develop too much, in verse 29, the word they... Notice it doesn't say what will they, this, he says what will they do who are baptized for the dead. It doesn't say what will we do or what will you do who are baptized for the dead. He says what will they do? Who are the they? We don't know. The only thing I know is the they can't be the Corinthians and it can't be Paul because it wouldn't be they if he said it. So there's some other group out there that's doing this. So why would Paul even bring this in? Because this is what happens when the church ceases to be the influence on the world around them. They start sucking off of bizarre things that go around, and they try to make it part of the church. So let me tell you what uh, what you might not know, by the way. There is, just north of Corinth, across the Saronic, or right across the Saronic Gulf, is a city called Eleusis. And Eleusis, by the way, was the center of what was called the mystery religion. And it's interesting because this mystery religion spoke exactly of what they're talking about here. You read it, by the way, in Homer's Hymn to Demeter, by the way, that's page 48 and, or 478 and 479. You read about it in Cicero when, he's, when he writes De Legibus, by the way, natural law. That's in like chapter 2, paragraph 14, sentence 36, if you really want to know. Sophocles does so, by the way, in his Pindar Fragment, 212. Uh, Orpheus does it in his Orphic Fragment, 245. I mean, that's just historical stuff. But all of them speak about this special hidden society where everybody kind of does things with their like magic rings and their hand, magic handshakes. Sound kind of familiar? And in all of that, by the way, there's this idea that they try to tap into, the, they do these seance-oriented things, and then people get baptized. But here's the point of it, is that the church tried to figure out how to, they use the term redeem. We try to figure out how to redeem that. And we see that happen in church. It's like we found some song and we like the groove of it, but it's totally ungodly. So we're just going to redeem it. We're just going to change the lyric of it. We're going to change it to Jesus. And I'll just redeem the song. The problem is, anybody who's like sinning back with that song isn't going to hear the new lyric. They're going to go back and go, oh, I remember when I was in the club with that song. And here's the problem with that. Paul's looking at you going, do you realize this is seeped into the church? And he's bringing up an example of something that seems like total nonsense, but you're still doing it in the church. And we still do that today. Do you know what scripture says about witchcraft? God calls it an abomination. He never changed his mind on it. He says, it's not to be in my house. But I know churches that show Harry Potter. Now, you can jump all over that if you want to one way or another, but let me just make it clear, it ain't happening here. You say, well, that's just theatrical. That's not like real witchcraft. Oh, so fake witchcraft is okay? Well, it's all right. We don't have real sex. We have fake sex in church. Does that work? What sin can you fake and it's still good with God? Now, I'm just trying to be clean here with you. God really wants us to get real. He wants us to get real and get serious. Here's the good news. is If we seek to influence the world, I understand the world's starving for power. They're starving for something real. And we're the ones who have it. And if we're too busy trying to draw from them, how in the world are they going to know? So Why are you doing this? You guys are bringing this argument, and you even adapted this into the church. This nonsense, and you still think it couldn't possibly How does that work? And he goes, and we stand in jeopardy. Every hour we stand in jeopardy, because I die daily in this. And i got to tell you, walk in this in my own spirit, seeking the Lord in this. The Lord says, are you living the life that is really ready to die daily? Hey, there's one thing, I'll be honest. In a heroic moment, I could jump in front of a bullet. And that is, it sounds kind of crazy, but I'm the kind of crazy person that might do something like that for you. But I'll be honest, the idea of dying daily sounds a whole lot harder. That's not just a one cool heroic moment. This is a commitment. And for some of us, that's like a scarier word than any other. It's a scarier word than bullet. Bullet. So I have to see Jesus as a reality today and I have to release my death grip on the world if I'm really going to be ready to die daily. And I have to check my grip on the cross. I want to live my life that if I were to die or the rapture were to happen in any moment, I'm okay with it. I don't want to have anything in my life that is, I'm so holding on to. Like, oh God, please, don't come until the end of the World Cup. Hey, England, and America have both lost now. The Lord could come any moment. And some of us are like, Lord, come now. This would be great. So I die daily. Could you imagine? I'm glad to die daily. You know why? And that's what we, 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 as we start bringing this around now. Because dying daily allows for a resurrected life to be daily. If in the manner of men I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, what advantage is that to me if the dead don't rise? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. By the way, that's a, it's Epicurus, by the way, the one we get the term Epicurean from, and his letter to Menoeceus, That's 128, by the way, doctrines of ethics. Meander, by the way, speaks of something of this like as well in thais 2.18 when he talks about evil company corrupting good habits. But God says, look, at you just, let's just make sure you know this. If the best you can get is this world, then you might as well just jump into the world. But we don't have that. We have better than that. So he says this. I know what you're going to say. And this is playing what's called parapathetic. And by the way, he says, awake to righteousness. And it was wake up, you guys. And don't sin. For some don't have the knowledge of God. He goes, you're so busy trying to sin right now. People aren't even knowing about Jesus. And he goes, I speak this to your shame. Because if you were actually busy being filled with Christ, people would know about him. But someone would say, Oh, yeah, Mr. Smirpanes, well, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? And Paul hears that little cheeky talk. This is why, by the way, some will not cremate, right? Because, but hey, let's face it. If If you're like, if people died thousands of years ago, what do you think they look like right now? But I get it. So what body are you going to use? And he goes, don't you realize? And I love that he uses the term foolish one. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. You want to bear fruit. Fruitfulness comes after death. Remember, it's stomped in the ground. And then you say, as the first fruit is, let the whole harvest be. What you sow... You do not sow that body that will be, but the grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he pleases. And I love this. Listen, God gives it a body as he pleases. I am going to have a body that God gives that will please him. It won't be driven by sin. It won't struggle with the passions of this world, but rather it will have the drives of Christ. Could you imagine thinking every thought pleasing god your body wanting to serve instead of sin could you imagine imagine if your body wanted to but your brain didn't how funny that would be somebody can say i need something you're like oh, i don't want to and your body's like oh and you're like no 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 sit down and your body's like oh i'm going to help how strange we would look He goes, but there's going to be a day it'll all be his hey look at all flesh isn't the same flesh There's one kind of flesh of men. There's another kind of flesh of animals, another fish, another birds. We're aware of that. Well, there's celestial bodies and there's terrestrial bodies. The glory of the celestial is one. The glory of the terrestrial is another. Now, listen, the things of this earth, the glory is temporary. The things of eternity, they're eternal. There is one glory for the sun, another for the moon, a glory for the stars. And even one star differs from another in glory, which, by the way, leads me to believe in, if he's sort of setting things up here, that we might still look different from each other. So also is the resurrection of the dead. Body is sown in corruption; it's raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown in natural body, raised in spiritual body. This is there's a natural body and there's a spiritual body. As it is written, Adam became the first Adam became a living being; the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, spiritual is not like the first; the natural is, and then after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord of heaven. And as the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, in other words, we look like Adam, so we also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now, this I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Corruption neither. Corruption can inherit incorruption. And then he ends with this last point. Now listen, as we get around this, this is what we deal with right now. Ready? Corruption, dishonor, weakness, and it being natural. That's what we have now. The moment we start living resurrected, let me tell you what it starts to look like. Incorruption, glory, power, and spiritual. That's what it starts to look like. And the moment we start living that life, there's going to be a day, it's all it's going to be, all it's going to be, It'll never be corruption again. We'll never see decay. Do you know what corruption means? Have you ever left an apple out? It changes colors. You ever leave a banana out, what happens? Changes colors. Sooner or later, the only thing it's good for is bread. We have one of those water filters. You know those kind where you put all the water in and it filters, and it's supposed to be really great? But it sits out somewhere near the sun. Mold grows on the inside of it. How does that work? I'm like, that's supposed to be pure water. Where did the mold come from? Follow me on this as we close this up. We're to live resurrected. The old life decays. The old person decays. The mind doesn't get sharper, it gets weaker. The body doesn't get stronger, it gets weaker. Breaths get shorter, steps get slower. He goes, that all reminds us that this is not permanent. But the good news is, and he talks about planting it. It's just like a person that dies gets planted in the ground because there's a whole new thing that rises, baby, and the whole new thing that rises is full of incorruption and full of glory and full of power. And that's what God says a resurrected life should look like. It shouldn't look like the dying world out there that's sipping and, by the way, nipping and tucking and sucking and injecting. And I mean, you were injecting pork disease in your face to try to keep it you know, from looking older. It's called botulism. Remember that? You eat bad pork, you swallow up like, you know, a gas balloon because of the bacteria. And now they put it in your face so that you kind of like, ah, I'm so angry, but I can't do it because I can't not smile for 45 minutes. And he goes, you know, here's the thing. You were born of the man of dust, and that man of dust, by the way, you're going to come, you're going to end up like him. But the good news is, if you are a part of Jesus, you become more like him. And, you know, that is as good a news as you could possibly get, isn't it? Hey, you now, look, don't get me wrong. I'm not telling you you shouldn't take care of yourself. I've heard someone say that, and who knows if, you know, they tell you stories about all these guys, like, you know, I, I, I can't call Spurgeon and ask him, you know. But I heard some, whether it was Spurgeon or whether it was well, one of those guys. And it was like he was speaking about, how immodest gals were being and some woman came up to him and said sir are you telling me it's a sin not to wear makeup and he just turned to her and said ma'am for you it's no sin now i don't know if that's true but you know sometimes i guess when you get older you get away with things like that listen how this ends behold do you know what that means He goes, I know you want to leave. I know things are wrapping up here. It's a little cold in here, and you could think about a lot of things at this moment, but stop it and just focus with me. Focus. I'm going to tell you a mystery. Isn't that cool? Because remember how these people were seeping into this mystery religion? He goes, you want a mystery? Let me give you one. But it's a biblical one, not that cookie stuff out there that people are playing with their Ouija boards. I'm going to tell you a real serious mystery, a for real mystery. We will not all sleep. But we will all be changed. There is going to be a moment. Not everybody's going to die. There is going to be a moment when we're all going to be changed, whether we've died or not. And in that moment, in the twinkling of an eye, it isn't like you have a lot of time to think about it. It's going to be like quicker than that. And it just says there will be that last trumpet. The trumpet will sound... The dead will be raised incorruptible and we will all be changed. Because you want to know about a mystery? At any given moment, the Lord could come. And here's the cool thing. It isn't like any of you who are afraid of heights are going to freak out when he sucks you into the sky. It is going to happen so quick like the twinkling of an eye. All of a sudden, there will be no more pain. All of a sudden, there will be no more decay. No more death. No more tears. No more regrets. And it tells us in Isaiah 66, when we stand before him, he's even going to remove our memory of sin. We will never even remember anymore what we've done wrong or what anyone's done to us. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal immortality, and the idea is we get to change from corruption to incorruption, from mortal to immortal, in other words, from temporary to permanent. For this corruption has put on when? This corruption, corruptible has put on incorruptible, and this mortal immortality will be brought to pass, that which is saying, and he goes, hey, you know what, you've been so busy, you're so into the world, you have to, it's like everything, he's like, you don't even have scriptures, you have song lyrics. He goes, but let's get back to scripture, shall we? Because it will be brought to pass what is written, death shall be swallowed up in victory. Isaiah 25, 8, by the way, when it says he'll swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from their faces. Hey, This is Old Testament stuff here. This isn't a New Testament thought. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all of the earth, for the Lord has spoken. In other words, God says, I've said it. It's going to happen. And you know what we're going to say at that moment? Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Stand strong with me. Immovable. We're not going to give up any more ground. The world says this is the way it is. And someone stands up and says, I think Jesus was a compassionate gay guy that would be more than happy to. Hey, people who, it's amazing how when you do something, you're an expert in everything. Let me just declare to you, God knows who He is. And He doesn't need someone who doesn't know Him to declare it. He needs people who know Him to declare it. And listen, be steadfast. Be immovable. No time to give up ground and try to make friends with the world. It is time to take ground for the Lord. Influence this world around us. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor and is not in vain. In the Lord. Because there is a resurrection, my labor isn't in vain. And here's how we end it. Verse 55. Oh, death, where is your sting? Verse 57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Follow me on this as we bring this to close. Listen, beloved, you cannot have a victory without a challenge. And we want to live victorious lives, but we don't want challenges. And we're like, I just want to live a life that's comfortable. Where is the battle to be victorious in that? Jesus leads us in victory, but to lead us in victory, there has to be a competition. There has to be some form of fight. And I've heard it said, you may not be the best fighter, but you are in the best fight. The good news is, beloved, the fight you're going to fight is whether you want to live unresurrected or live resurrected. Because you have a choice. The world doesn't. The world's going to live dead because that's who they are. Until you come to Christ, that's all you have. And now here you are. It's like dual citizenship. Where do you want to make your claim? Beloved, follow me as we go to prayer in this. Jesus leads you in victory. But to lead you in victory, there is a battle to be fought. And that battle says, I love the old me. And Jesus says, let the old me die. Not me. I I nailed him to the cross, I buried that boy, let him stay there, and let's live a new life now, one that isn't corrupted. When the dirty joke happens, we don't listen to tell someone else. When the horrible things happen around us, we don't partake and stick our toe in the pool and say, well, at least I didn't get fully wet. How much poison do you want in you? I'm going with none. As we go to prayer, beloved, you can't have resurrection without death. Death has to happen before resurrection. You can't have fruit without death because the seed has to die to bear forth fruit. And I want to bear forth fruit every day. I want to live resurrected every day. And therefore, I want to die daily. I want to lay it before Jesus, who is my first fruits, and say, you did it. I want to do it now. You want to walk with me in that? Let's do it. And let's let Jesus make us what he wants to make us. Different from the world so we can impact the world around us. Hey, The Lord could use one person to transform the world around us. What could happen if he used all of us in this room right now? Pray with me, would you please? Thank you, Lord, so much for this beautiful text. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done in our hearts. Lord, I pray right now, if there is just weird, if we are flirting with the world, we're trying to play more cadaver games, and we're, we're, we're sniffing around tombs we don't belong in, and we're not there trying to call out the dead, but rather to try to lie among them, forgive us and transform us right now. We don't want to try to let the world seep into the church so that the world feels comfortable in here. I don't want anybody to feel comfortable in here in their sin i don't want to feel comfortable in here in my sin but rather lord may we feel comfortable in you in here lord that no matter how bad the sinner is they could come in and lay it at the cross and find forgiveness and find new life just like you intend but lord for that to happen we have to be willing to die daily like you call us to and lord i I confess to you that is a battle but you lead us in victory and so lord Forgive your church, and I don't mean just us, but the church in mass, for not being steadfast, for not holding our ground, but giving it up somehow and then trying to give the world, saying you write the rules so that we can be your friend. We don't want to be friends with the world. We want to be the friend to the world the right way, which is to lead them out of their graves and lead them to you. So Lord, please teach us, Lord, That either for the swimmers, we're going to look at them as sharks or lifeguards. Make us the lifeguards you call us to be. And please, Lord, today, let us gladly let you lay who we were down to live the resurrected life you call us to. As Paul would say, that even in knowing the power of your sufferings, that he would know the power of your resurrection. Oh, God, let us live those resurrected lives now, we pray. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross to show us what death really looks like. Thank you, Lord, for rising from the grave, for raising from the dead, so that, Lord, we could see what resurrection looks like. And Lord, as much as these bodies still may decay, inside we are renewed in every moment. And Lord, thank you that our spirits don't have to suffer entropy. Thank you, Lord, that our spiritual lives do not have to suffer decay. But rather, Lord, they could become more vibrant with every moment, the opposite of what happens at this world. And so, Lord, Jesus says you're more than our Savior, but our Lord, that our love and our life lead us in that resurrected life, we pray. Jesus, in your name. Amen.